Or we're in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 75. Matthew 26, 57 through 75. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is, the, is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, when we left off last week, we saw that the Jewish council had gathered in the middle of the night in order to convict Jesus of crimes worthy of death. Now, go with me real quick back to John chapter 11. Let me just kind of remind you of where we left off last week. John chapter 11, look at verses 45 through 53. As we read this, you're going to see how silly it is that Caiaphas would say, hey, We've just heard the blasphemy. What, what, do you, what is your verdict? What do you guys think we should decide when they've already decided days before? In, in uh, John chapter 11, look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, that's raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So when they in their false trial that they've set up in the middle of the night say, hey, what do you guys think? Let's make a decision here. It's kind of silly. They'd already made the decision days before that he was to be put to death. But look closely here at verse um, 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And interesting, they were more concerned with their position 
than it was their nation. But at the same time, they were also concerned about their nation. Now, we could sit here and take a look at the fact that the Pharisees, even though they weren't in full control because the Romans were in full authority at that time, the Roman had, Romans had let the Jews have their government and all their other stuff. The, the big, big decisions were the only ones that the Romans were concerned about. And so the religious leaders were still kind of big dogs in the Jewish culture, and they loved their position. As Jesus said, they loved the, high, the important seats at, at, at the feasts and different things like that. And they loved everybody greeting them on the street and calling them rabbi. And, but they said, look, if we let Jesus keep doing what Jesus is doing, we're, we might lose our position, and not only that, we may lose our nation. Now, I want to take your eyes off of the religious leaders, and I want to put them back on yourself tonight. And I want you to stick with me here, because I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to show you something from Scripture that kind of ties to where we're going right now, not just in, in our nation, but in the world. And I want you to not jump to any conclusions or assume in your mind that you know where I'm going with this, because you may or you may not. But I want the Scripture to speak to us tonight. Which is more important to you? Are you willing to reject Jesus to keep your position in this world? Are you more concerned with God's agenda in this world? Or are you more interested in preserving America? We're living in a time right now, folks, where unfortunately too many Christians are getting caught up in saving our nation. Please hear me. I love being an American. I'm proud to be an American. God chose, according to Acts chapter 17, when I'd be born and where, and he chose me to be born here. But if you remember when we looked at last week, in the last couple of weeks, when Peter went to swing his sword, Jesus said, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he made this statement. He said, don't you realize I have the authority and my father has the authority to send 12 legions of angels to stop this if I wanted to? But how would scripture be fulfilled? And I want to show you something from scripture, a couple of things from scripture that you may not know. I'm going to show you from scripture that if America even exists in the last of the last days, we're not going to be a nation to be proud of. We're going to be against Israel, just like every other nation on the earth. We will not be a Christian nation, which I even say to you now, which I'll show you from Scripture. I don't think we are now. But go to Zechariah chapter 12. Go to Ze the book of Zechariah. Look at chapter 12 and look at verses 1 through 3. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. If the scripture says that all the nations of the earth are going to gather against Israel... All the nations of the earth are going to gather against Israel, folks. Yes, because of the president that we've had, he's been pro-Israel and he's done a lot of wonderful things. But you know what? Because God, you're going to see when we get to our Daniel study, God's the one who chooses who goes into power. The Bible's real clear that God sets up kings and he takes them down. And we may be heading to a time period in which we as a nation are not going to be a friend of Israel but if we spend all our time trying to preserve America and hang on to America and make America what we think it needs to be, how will the scripture be fulfilled? Again, as you're going to hear me say in just a little bit, that doesn't mean we're not to be salt and we're not to be light, that we're not to speak the truth. But we have to be real careful that our agenda does not become saving America instead of the things of God. 
Jesus has a plan for his world. It's already been laid all out. The scripture shows us how it's all going to be. We don't know the exact day or hour or how the timing of it's all going to play out, but we know some of it. But the scripture says by the end, things will get so bad on the earth, every single nation will be against Israel. And that's going to happen. You remember I said this to you two weeks ago. God's word is sure. God's word is true. What God has said is going to happen will happen no matter how strongly you may feel otherwise. But Jim, doesn't it say in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 that if his people would just pray and, and, and seek his face and turn from their sins, then, then he'll hear them and heal their land. Yes, it does. But I don't have time to get into breaking that passage down as much as let me also show you from the scripture that the Bible clearly says that if God has chosen and decided that a judgment is coming on a nation, it doesn't matter who prays. Go to Ezekiel chapter, chapter 14. Go to Ezekiel chapter 14. And starting in verse 12. Look closely what the scripture says. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and I say, let a sword pass through that land and I cut off from it man and beast. Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Look what God says. If I've determined a judgment's coming on a land because they've acted faithlessly, it doesn't matter who's in there praying. The judgment's going to come. And folks, I can't say any more except to say that the Bible's very, very clear. When the last of the last days happens, if America exists, we won't be the nation that you think you'd like it to be. It's going to be one of the many nations. All of the nations of the earth are going to be against Israel and coming to fight them and Jesus himself. Now, what I'm saying to you is this. If you spend all your energy as a Christian trying to save America, you're not going to save America. But we can slow the decay. We're not going to stop it. But we can still be salt and light. How do we be salt and light? We're salt and light by speaking the truth of God's word and focusing on what God has said, not a political party. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We tell people about Jesus and his righteousness that it's only received by faith. We tell them of his soon return to judge the world, but we don't put our hope in a political movement. That's only temporary. What God does is eternal. And unfortunately, right now, I'm seeing too many Christians in this time in which people across the nation and the world are all setting up their sides and becoming enemies of each other. Churches and Christians are now setting up their camps as to whether or not you're fighting the fight that I'm saying you're supposed to be fighting, because that's where I'm focusing and you need to be focusing there. And I just want to say to you, look, 
Go with me to John chapter 18 and see what Jesus said. Go to John chapter 18 and we'll look at verses 33 through 38. John 18, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters and he, again and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What's truth? Boy, doesn't that sound like what people are saying today? What's truth? Look at what Jesus said. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not focusing on turning around things on this earth right now. There's going to be a day when I do that, when I come back. But right now, that's not the focus. And folks, we need to remember that we're to be focusing on the things of God and what he's put us here to be and to do. And he's not set us here to save the nation in the sense of making everything politically the way we want it. If you ever take the time to read the book of Habakkuk, there's just three chapters. Let me paraphrase paraphrase the book of Habakkuk for you. Habakkuk actually cries out to God and says, God, I don't think you're paying attention. The righteous people are suffering and the wicked people are prospering. And I don't think you're paying attention. God says to him, actually, I am paying attention and I'm going to do something because of Israel's wickedness. I'm going to send the Babylonians down to take you captive. Habakkuk's response is awesome. He says pretty much, how can you justify that? I just said the wicked people are prospering and the righteous people are suffering. And you're going to take a more wicked nation than us, the Babylonians, And you're going to use them to judge us so the righteous are going to suffer more and the wicked are going to prosper more. But when you get to chapter 3, Habakkuk understands that if God said it, his word is sure, his word is true. And what he said is going to happen is going to happen no matter how strongly he feels otherwise. And his attitude is this. I'll wait patiently for that day to come. He prayed that it wouldn't happen. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that this doesn't happen. We pray that all these things we're reading about that are going to happen to America don't happen in our lifetime. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. But if he decides that it's time, are you willing to say he's God and I'll wait patiently for that day? Folks, that's why I can't wait for our next study as we get into Daniel. We finish. We only got two more chapters in Matthew. I think that'll take us about six months. But we're, uh, but we only got two more chapters. Actually, we're going to finish by the middle of March because we're going to start Daniel. I can't wait to get into Daniel. Not only because of the end time prophecy that's full of it, that's there, but also the fact that people like Daniel and Shadrach and Abednego were taught how to follow God in an ungodly nation, an ungodly culture. Now. As I say to you, and as I said to you last week, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Some of you are saying, well, Jim, are you saying we shouldn't get guns and defend our property and all this stuff? Listen closely to what I want you to hear. Beware of anyone that makes a blanket statement that all Christians should do the same thing. 
The Bible is very, very clear in Romans 14 that all of us aren't going to be not only seeing things the same way, God may have a different plan for each of us. And each must be fully convinced in their own mind. And who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, Romans 14, verse 4. To his own master he stands or falls. Listen, and the Lord is able to make him stand. Actually, go with me real quick to Romans chapter 14. Let me show you a couple of things real quick. Go to Romans 14. And look at verses 5 through 12. In Romans 14, starting in verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Romans 14, verse 4, 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. With the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died, folks, and he lived again. That he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. In other words, he gets to be the one who determines how they're to live their life. Why do you pass, your ju pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you remember back when we did our study of Ezekiel, when God brought the nation of Babylon down to take the nation of Israel captive, there were people that God had told them, look, the judgment's coming, accept it. Go to Babylon and I'll take care of you in Babylon. You remember when he studied it? He told him, look, you go to Babylon, I'll bless you. If you just walk with me, I'll prosper you in Babylon. Yet he also told Jeremiah, I want you to stay back in, Jer in Jerusalem with some of the people that are going to be left in the land. Did you catch that? Some were told to go to Babylon. Others were told by God, the same God, to stay in Jerusalem during that time. What I want you to hear is, is however you feel about what should be happening, you better make sure that it's what God's telling you, first of all. And it's not just your own righteous anger. That's why the Bible says in James chapter 1, verses 19 and following, that all of us should be slow to, to speak, quick to listen. Listen closely. For man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And you might feel something so strongly, God has to feel that way too. Make sure that what you're doing is because God has clearly spoken to you and he's shown you through his word and you're obeying him. But be careful. Don't then become the Lord of the person next to you and say, God showed me this. You need to be feeling the same way and you need to be doing the same thing. Because like I just showed you, he told some go to Babylon and I'm going to bless you there. That's where I want you to be. Others, he said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and that's where I want you to be. We can't make following God a set of rules and policies each of us has to be led by the Lord. And in the midst of it, work toward what makes for peace and mutual, mutual edification. So that's what he says verse, in verse 19 in Romans 14. So then let us, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, going back to Matthew 26, the trial that's going on. Notice how they had false witnesses come and witness against Jesus at his trial. And did anybody notice how nothing could stick they brought all these false witnesses. It says in verse 57 that, uh, 58 that Peter was following at a distance. We'll come to that later tonight. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. 
By the way, Hebrews 4.15 said that he was tempted in every way in which we are, what? Yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, Jesus was so perfect in what he did, they couldn't find even one little thing to accuse him of. By the way, if you guys wanted to all of a sudden pull up a trial right now and put me on the stand, I bet you you'd find some stuff. I bet you you'd find lots of stuff. Think about it yourself. And we're living in a day and age in which people are saying, oh, so-and-so did this when he was in college back 30 years ago. They did not fit. To, have you ever known? And I'm sitting there watching this go on in the globe, and I'm saying, you're wanting to hold that guy accountable for everything he's done in his past. Do you really want to go down that road? Is the nation, is the world really ready to be judged for every little thing that we've done? Man, thank God we won't be. Thank God we won't be because of Jesus. He'll separate our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. He won't hold it against us. Thank God for that. Yet the world today is saying, we want to make sure that everybody's held accountable for everything they did. They don't know where they're headed. It's called the white throne judgment. And the Bible says that everything they've ever done will be written down in those books and they don't want to be held accountable. But they think they do. Why? Because they're the ones who are determining what's right and what's wrong. They even tried twisting Jesus' words about his body being destroyed and raised three days later. But even that didn't work. Go real quickly to John chapter 2. Let's take a look at Jesus' actual words that they twist. In John chapter 2, look at verses 18 through 22. John chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus just cleaned the temple out. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So all he said was, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, he was referring to the temple of his body. They heard destroy this temple, and they thought it was the temple that was Solomon's temple there. Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark, Mark's account of what we're looking at tonight in Matthew 26 gives us a little bit more information. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance. Again, we're going to deal with that as we close tonight. Right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up before and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do, you, do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving 
death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So they've come and they've accused him of all this stuff. Nothing sticking. Nothing sticking. So the high priest says to Jesus, aren't you going to say something? Why do you think Jesus is silent? There's lots of reasons. So don't be afraid to throw something out. Why do you think Jesus is silent? Because in the Old Testament, he said before him as a sheep to his flock. That's one of the passages that talk, that's definitely one of the prophecies actually said that he would be silent. There's more. It didn't matter what he said anyway. They've already made up their mind. This is a joke. There's even more. Jesus also knows who's orchestrating this whole thing. Satan. And Satan likes to take whatever you say and twist it, does he not? Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve have been told by God, look, you can eat any tree you want in this garden. Just don't eat of this one tree. Satan comes to Eve and he just tries to get her involved in a little conversation did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which is an absolute phony lie. But he's doing it so that Eve would take the bait. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. Let me show you how much I know. Be careful. Whenever you like to show how much you know. She says, oh, no, we can eat from any tree we want. Just the, this one, because God said if we even touch it, we'll die. And then he goes, oh, you won't die. And he starts taking her down that road, and she falls prey to it. Jesus already knows they're already going to do what they're going to do. Whatever he says isn't going to change a thing anyway. I mean, think about what happened in the garden when they came to arrest him. And he said, who have you come for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I'm he. Actually, he says, I am. And what happened? They all were knocked down by the Holy Spirit and fell down backwards on the ground. And they all got back up and still arrested him. You think one or two might have gone, you know, I don't think I'm going to touch him. He might be electric, you know, but whatever they're already going to do. But he also knows the only reason you want me to talk is so that you can actually twist it. You don't really want to hear. Doesn't Jesus himself say not to cast our pearls before swine? We've got to know when someone's really wanting to listen and really wanting to learn or whether or not someone wants to just get into a debate with you. By the way, be careful when you're on social media. You may think that you're sharing God's word and God's truth. There's so many people out there that are empowered by Satan and all they want to do is get in an argument with you and lead you down a road that's unright to unrighteousness. You'll be able to know when the Spirit's showing you this person really, really wants to know. By the way, did you notice that Jesus did talk to Pilate? You know, when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus didn't sit there silent. He then said, hey, who, who, who said this to you? Is this from you or is this from somebody else? Why? Because Pilate really wanted to know. He's trying to figure out what's going on here. He's not plotting against Jesus. He's curious. Jesus actually talks to him because he was seeking his wife had even told him, I had a dream about this guy. Don't even have anything to do with it. So he's in this and he's kind of torn. He's curious. Jesus talked to him. But then the high priest, because Jesus won't answer, the high priest pulls out his big card and he makes him swear by God. I adjure you by the living God. Under oath, you have to answer this question. And by the way, he did. Now, wait a minute, Jim. Didn't Jesus himself teach us, and you've already taught us back in Matthew 5, that Jesus said never to take an oath? Well, let's go back to Matthew 5 real quick. 
kind of set the stage because you're going to see tonight some very interesting things when it comes to taking oaths. Some things we covered when we looking at Matthew 5 and something that's tied to what we looked at tonight or some of the passages we've read tonight. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verses 33 through 37. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, Jesus said, look, you've heard that it was said that you're to not swear falsely. I'm just going to try to tell you this. Don't even take oaths at all for the fact of you should be known for what you say is right. What you say is what you mean. If you're yes, you say yes, your answer is yes. If your answer is no, your answer is no. Anything more comes from evil. In other words, if you feel like you have to say, no, no, I really mean it this time. That should already say you got a problem. When you have to say, no, I pinky swear or scout's honor on my mother's grave. Why did you have to add that? Have you not been trustworthy or truthful in the past? But the Bible doesn't say that taking an oath is wrong. The context is, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. If you were to take this to the, to, there are some people that say when they go to court, well, I can't put my hand on the Bible. Jesus said we're not to take an oath. And you know, when you go in the courtroom, you're supposed to put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. There are some people who say we can't do that. Jesus said don't take an oath. Well, then he broke his own command, if that's what he was saying, because I'm going to show you a couple of places. The Bible shows us that God himself swore by an oath. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Look at Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So why did God swear an oath? The answer is right here. Look again in verse uh, 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his character. In other words, have you ever noticed how many times Jesus said, Surely, surely I say to you, or truly, truly I say to you? Was he not truly, truly on the times before? Go real quickly at Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 29 through 31. Acts chapter 2, 29 through 31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here again, here we see God swore an oath to David when he made his promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. So Jesus and God have been swearing oaths. What's the difference between God swearing an oath and you and I swearing an oath? He can back it up because he cannot lie. When God says, surely, surely, or truly, truly, I say to you, or he swears by an oath, it's not because he's not believable. He's trying to be even more emphatic. Look, I never lie. Oh, don't miss this, folks. The high priest says to Jesus, I adjure you, I command you, by the living God, tell us, are you the Christ? Does Jesus lie? Can he lie? What did he say when he said under oath, are you the Christ or not? What was Jesus' answer? I am. What does that tell us, folks? He is the Christ. He's the prophesied one who is not only man, but also God. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. What's the next part? <laughs> Almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Folks, Jesus under oath said, I am the Christ. And with that, he said, I'm God. And all the prophecies are pointing to me. Go to James chapter 5 real quick. Look at verse 12. James chapter 5, look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. The context of Jesus' teaching about oaths is simply this. We got a problem. We as humans aren't perfect. And sometimes we may swear an oath to make people believe a lie. Oh, we wouldn't do that. Does anybody notice from what we looked at tonight where someone swore an oath so that they would believe a lie? Who? Peter. Peter did exactly what Jesus was teaching them not to do in Matthew 5. And they're saying, you were with him. No, no, no. And they wouldn't believe him. Someone else comes and no, you were definitely with him. I know this. And he swore an oath. I swear by whatever. I don't know the man. Then he even called down curses. May my mother die. Oh, he was lying. And he swore an oath to cover his lie. That's why Jesus tells us, you don't need oaths. You don't need to say, I really mean it this time. If you learn how to let your yes be yes and your no be no. My wife will tell you and my kids will tell you, this is something that's very, very important with me. Because I have been given a role by God to stand here in front of people all over this country and parts of the world and say, thus says the Lord. That's why I got no problem with saying, I don't know. Because if I don't know, I don't want to pretend I do. That's like taking an oath. I don't want to pretend that I know something I don't. But when I do say to you, Here's what God's word says. I want you to believe me. And I don't want you to say, well, it's just Jim blowing smoke again. That's why when I say we start at seven, we start at seven and we finish at eight. We finish at eight. If I tell you I'm going to be there at a certain time, you promise. I tell you, I will be there when I say 
I deal with pastors all over the country, and over the years, too many pastors have been famous for being late. They like to make it look like they're super busy. Oh, I've been real busy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about 20 minutes later. I'm sorry. No, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because if as a pastor you say, I'll be there at 7, and you don't show up till 7.30, you've already taught them, you can't believe what everything I say. And the same thing for all of us. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That actually changed Becky's and my parenting. You know how a lot of people, and please don't hear me making a judgment about you, but you know how a lot of parents will say, one, two. We taught our kids that if we have to count, one means one spanking, two means two spankings, three means you better go move in with somebody else. <laughs> because we didn't want our kids to believe that we meant it when we got to three. We meant it when we said it the first time. If your kid's running out into the street and a truck's coming, you don't have time to get to three. You want your kid to know what you said you mean. And by the way, how many of you have said to your kids, if you don't knock that off, I'm going to rip your arm off and beat you with it. <laughs> Pretty soon the kid's going to go, yeah, that, that's going to. So we've had to be really careful. Whatever our threat was, we better do it. But your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus doesn't break his rules by say, swearing, uh, taking this oath. Because God does make oaths. Because God will always keep them. You and I, let's just stay away from staying, doing oaths. Not because you're sinning by doing it. You can put your hand on the Bible, but you just better, whatever you say in that courtroom better be true. Because listen closely, this is something a lot of people don't know. When you say you'll do something and you don't do it, or you lie, that's what the Bible means by taking the Lord's name in vain. If you look at the scripture, when it talks about it in the context People think that swearing and using God's name as a swear word is, is taking the Lord's name in vain. And that's a form of it. But really what the Bible shows us taking the Lord's name in vain means is if we walk around claiming to be children of God and not acting like him, we're taking his name in vain. A lot of the, my kids will tell you whenever they used to head out, we'd always, I'd always say to them, act like a relative. Act like a relative. I'd also say don't drink any cigarettes and smoke any beer when you go out tonight. And I say that a lot. But I'd always say... Don't, don't, I, I say to them, act like a relative. What that meant was when you leave this house, you represent the Johnsons. You represent your mom and your dad. Act like one of us. Don't bring shame on our name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Jesus goes one step further, though. They said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. And he said, not only I am. He then said, and the next time you see me, you will see me coming in the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. By the way, that's what got them all upset. Not that he had said that he was the Christ, but that he said, I'm God. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament, what he just said wouldn't have made any sense to you. But let me take you real quickly to two passages in the Old Testament. Go to Psalm 110. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus said, you're going to see me seated in the place of power. The right hand of the Father. Go real quickly to Daniel chapter 7. Told you I was excited about Daniel. We're going to get a little Daniel tonight. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. 
Daniel 7, verse 13, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with what? The clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The prophecy that Daniel was given that he saw this Son of Man, one that looked like a man who was before the Ancient of Days, the, the God himself, and in the clouds of heaven, he was presented this kingdom that will never end. Jesus said, not only am I the Christ, the prophesied Messiah, you're going to see me sitting in the seat of power at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they tore their robes. I don't have time to get into it. The high priest was never supposed to tear their robe, according to the Old Testament law. So Jesus just said, I am the Christ, under oath, I'm the Christ. And on top of that, I'm God. And you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the Father and on the clouds of heaven. What was the reaction of all these people to that? I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement. Wouldn't you agree? What was their reaction? Oh, they mocked him. Yeah, they mocked him. They spit on him. They covered his face and hit him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Go to Psalm 36. Look at Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The wicked have no fear of God. Now, let me tell you something. Some of you might be kind of shocked and amazed at what's happening in the world and how wicked people are and how people are treating people this way and what they're really doing. And I've heard too many people say, I can't believe that they would do this. You don't remember your Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 7, sorry, 17 verse 9, the Bible says that the heart is what? Deceitful and desperately ill beyond cure. Don't lose sight of the fact that if they don't know Christ, they're living in their own flesh, in their own power. And the Bible said that is who they are. They may not want to realize it. Jesus said, if you, I'm not your father, your father's the devil. And so were we apart from Christ. Don't sit there and think all of a sudden that you're better than these people who are doing all these wicked things. Pray for them because a judgment is coming and everything they're doing, they'll be held accountable for. But the Bible says, well, let me put it to you this way. If man's heart is always bent toward evil, apart from Christ giving him a new heart, if man's heart is always bent toward evil, before I go any further, would you agree that the Bible says that? What's going to happen if you give them a democratic government where everybody gets a say on how things go? Why are we surprised at what's happening in America? Oh, back when the country was started, there were biblical, more, more biblical foundations than we have now. And there was a seeking of following God and his word and his law. But folks... Let the Bible be true and everybody else a liar. If man is wicked 
and there's no Christ in them to make a change. And by the way, those of you who are saved, you know there's still stuff that you wrestle with as a, as a Christian that you don't want anybody to know about. Think where you'd be if you didn't know Jesus. Don't be shocked at them. Don't be surprised. This is what the Bible said would happen. Jesus himself, as he was walking through the streets carrying the cross and the women were weeping for him, he said, hey, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because they're going to do this while the tree's green, while I'm here. What's it going to be like on the earth when I'm not? Oh, and when he raptures the church, and the Holy Spirit's work of the salt and the light has been removed. Folks, it's going to get really, really, really bad. As wicked as people are, no fear of God, it's going to get worse. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked. We don't have time, but in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul lays out, are we Jews any better? He said, no. The scripture has made very, very clear that we're all guilty under sin. And he talks how there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God. No one who understands. And then he quotes from the Old Testament all these passages, passages that talk about the evil of man. And then one of them he quotes from is Psalm 36, where he says, there's no fear of God in their eyes. So, I wrote in my notes, they decide, in quotes, Jesus is to be put to death. Like I've already told you, they'd already made that decision days before. But they decide in their trial to put Jesus to death. Those of you that were here last night, Jeremy, you can't answer. Becky and Elise, you can't answer. But everybody else, what do you think I put in my notes right after that? That they've decided that Jesus is to be put to death. Two words. Too late. God had already decided that before they did. The Bible says that he was slain before the foundation of the world. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 19 and 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And I will go back up to 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers... Not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. When did God plan that this was all going to happen? Before creation, this was all put in motion. God already knew what he was doing. Like I've said to you before, this is a bigger issue going on here, folks. That's going to help us in the, as we close tonight. This battle that's going on is really not about us. It's between Satan and God and Satan's minions, if you will, those angels that have left their position. Ephesians 3.10 says that God's plan is now through the church. His manifold wisdom, His divine nature, and all that stuff would be made clear to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's been something that's been going on before the creation of the world between God and Satan. And all this stuff that's happening right now in what we call space and time is for God to display His glory to all those angels who rebelled and to those who didn't. And if we let Him use us for His purposes, accept that if He puts us in a nation that's going to lose its position and power, folks, would you not agree? We've been blessed compared to other nations and some of the other things that Christians around the globe are having to go through. And here we are whining that we're not going to be as going the way we thought it should. Man, there are Christians all over the globe who have had it way worse than us for their whole history. We've gotten fat and happy and we've forgotten what the scripture says. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And we're not to be living for this world. 
Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that those men and women of faith who were commended for their faith weren't living for now. They were looking toward what was to come. We need to get back to that mindset. By the way, even though God had planned before the foundation of the world that this was what was going to happen, that Jesus was already planned to be put to death before the foundation of the world, does that remove the responsibility of these men who've made this decision and done this? No. Jesus himself said, because of sin, wickedness is going to come into the world. Sin's going to come into the world. But woe to him through whom it comes. And when he talked about Judas, he said it'd be better for him if he'd never been born. These individuals will be judged for eternity. For eternity. The Bible's really clear. We don't have time to get there tonight, but Jesus himself said that hell is so real. It's a place of fiery torment, and it doesn't extinguish. The fire's never quenched, and the worm doesn't die. If a worm doesn't burn up, humans are going to live in it forever. Don't listen to people who say, you know, I think if, this, if there is a hell, I've even heard preachers say this, if there is a hell, God's a loving God, and he'll only have them suffer for a while, and then they don't exist anymore. That's not what the Bible teaches. It actually says in the book of Revelation that their fire and their burning come before God forever and ever. The worm doesn't die the fire's never quenched. Hell's real and it's eternal. It's hard for me to get my mind around. It is. Yeah, it really is. It is. It's really hard for us. Now, Peter has been following, though, Jesus tonight. We've seen it twice. Once in Mark 14, here in Matthew 26. How has he been following Jesus? At a distance. That's what I want to wrap up with tonight. Beware of following Jesus at a distance. We need daily intimate abiding relationship, the daily intimate abiding relationship. When we follow at a distance, we tend to fall into sin. Because as you already know, apart from him, we can do nothing. Here we see Peter doing exactly what Jesus said he would do just a few hours earlier. Not only that, like I said, we see him swear an oath that he didn't know Jesus. He's piling up his sins pretty quickly, isn't he? But thank God they've already been forgiven. That's why when Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, he already sees the finished product. But what happened was, is he said, no, I will live for you. Beware of walking down an aisle and rededicating your life. I've been a part of church services where people walk the aisle in tears. I'm going to rededicate my life. I'm going to live for Jesus from now on. You might have done that yourself a few times. How'd that work out? Jesus has said all along, um, I'm the one who starts what I do in you, and I'm the one who finishes it. I'm the one who justifies you, and I'm the one that glorifies you, but I'm also the one that sanctifies you. In the same way in Colossians 2, 6, in which you receive Jesus as Lord, that's how you walk in him. You have to receive me by faith and say, I can't do it. Would you give it to me on a daily basis? That's why we have to lay our flesh on the altar and say, Jesus, I can't even live the Christian life unless you give me the ability, but I'm going to walk in obedience, believing that you said you will. And as you walk with him, in that abiding relationship. Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says it this way. So I say, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. But Peter is trying to live for Jesus on his own. Actually, I think we can trace Peter's problem back to the garden just a few hours earlier. When they didn't hear Jesus' words, go back to Matthew 26. Look at verses 40 and 41. Matthew 26, verses 40 and 41. 
he's praying in the garden that last night, right? As they're coming to arrest him. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to the disciples, or did he say to one individual? Isn't that interesting? There were many disciples there, but they, remember he went further with Peter, James, and John. And he came back and he found the three of them sleeping, at least, maybe all of them. But at this point, it appears to be Peter, James, and John. He finds them all sleeping, but he says to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Peter, the spirit indeed is willing. He wants to help, but the flesh is weak. What did Peter and the rest of the disciples do right after that? They went back to sleep. Isn't that interesting how Jesus sees them all sleeping? He says to Peter, though, Peter, you don't realize that you're about to go into a battle that you can't win unless the spirit is empowering you. And the spirit's wanting to help. He's right there. But you have to let him. And if you do this on your own, you think you can handle it. And you don't pray and you don't spend time with me. You're going to fail. Now, please listen to me, folks. Sleep is good. I love sleep. I've gotten good at sleeping. I'm a napper, too. I started learning how to nap when I was in college. Buddy, I love naps. Even when I pastored churches, every afternoon at a certain time, if I was in my office, I would go out and tell all the secretaries, no phone calls, no one knocking on my door, and I had a little egg timer. I set it for 20 minutes, lay on my couch, and, buddy, I could be out in a heartbeat. Wake up after a 20-minute nap. Now I can take an hour nap if I want to because I'm not a pastor of a church punching a time clock. <laughs> Sleep is necessary, but so is prayer and dependence on God in our battle against Satan. I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture tonight as we close to encourage you in this battle that's going to be ours and is ours, and but will get even worse in the days to come. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. By the way, before I go any further, do you see how silly it is that if we get the right people in the Senate, we can turn things around? We're not fighting against man. This is a bigger battle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. He says, look, you got to you, you battle against spiritual forces of evil, Satan and his minions. And if you don't realize this, you can't defeat him. You think you can get into a debate with him? You're going to lose. That's why Jesus himself, when he was in the wilderness, right after his baptism, he was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tested and be tempted. What did Jesus say every time? Scripture says, my father says, my scripture says, my father says. And Satan was coming at him, if you really are the Christ. Satan knew. He was up there with him. 
Turn these stones into bread. He responded with what the Father said, and what his word said. That's why we don't need another word. By the way, do you read in here that we're going to win in the sense of defeating the enemy here? No, it just says stand firm. Extinguish the fiery darts by faith. Know the word of God, and you'll be able to stand in that evil day. We're going to cast Satan out. Be careful. The Bible even says in the book of, of uh, um, the, just ran out, jumped out of my head. Last book right before Revelation. Jude, thank you. The book of Jude, that the, even the archangel Michael didn't dare bring accusation against Satan when he was debating with him over the body of Moses, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But why does it say here in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, and to that end keep alert with all perseverance? Why do we need to be continually in a conversation with the Lord, connected with the spirit, talking to him, living our life, but at the same time praying without ceasing? Why do we have to keep alert? Does you know why we have to keep alert? Because we fall asleep. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> Go to 1 Peter 5. The answer is in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. 1 Peter 5. Verses 8 through 11. Ah, we'll jump back in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, does it sound like we're defeating Satan and we're casting him out and we're bringing in the kingdom? That's not what it's sounding like, is it? It's sounding like the world's going to keep getting worse, but those who are Christ, they can stand firm. And they'll wait for that day. When God says, you did well, you didn't give in to his ploys, you trusted in me, and I will exalt you when it's time. You book it, look at the book of Hebrews. If you start in verse 35 and following, chapter 11, verse 35 and following, it talks about how some women received their children back from the dead. Some were escaped the edge of the sword. Others were killed by the sword. Others were sawn in two. Others wandered in dens and caves. The world wasn't even worthy of them. We want a theology that says we're going to win here. The Bible doesn't say we're going to win here. When it's all done and God's plan and all these things that he said is all going to play out happens, then we'll be fine. Because I'm going to let you out at 8 o'clock and my yes is yes and my no is no. Write down 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 through 24 where it talks about praying without ceasing. Rejoice always. Keep your eyes on the Lord, folks. Don't follow him at a distance. I love you. We'll see you next week when we start verse, uh, chapter 27.